Our top story tonight, a man (laughs) from the Susquehanna Valley area was found with his hands tied behind his back in the backseat of an SUV he did not own. Further details of the story at 6.30, but right now at the top of the hour, we have Janine. Janine, what's going on with that blizzard outside? Yes, um, Tyler, it's, it's snowing a lot out here. You can see that it's coming from the northwest, and mm-hmm. it's looking like in the city area, we're probably going to have about 17 inches of snow over the next- 17 inches. Yes, yes, and it's going to be happening over the next one hour. So, you guys- oh, <laughs> I don't know. That's a lot of snow, I guess. <laughs> uh, I want to apologize to my news producers for a word I used during our most recent broadcast. Um, I apologize. That is not the stance of this station, and I will be retiring. Thank you. <laughs> so, but why'd you call me Janine? <laughs> this is the first name that came to my mind. Instead of, like, my actual name? I mean, we were news reporters. Oh my god. Well, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany, not Janine. And, I- <laughs> and I'm Tyler. I didn't get a name. He just got Tyler because I didn't, I, I don't know what, I, I have no names. Oh god. Yeah, if y'all are wondering why that suddenly happened, apparently my countdown to us starting to record, Brittany thought I sounded like a news reporter, so... So we thought we would just go with that. (laughs) So I just went with it. Well, hope you guys are having a fantastic week. I was originally, before I was a weather reporter, a meteorologist, (laughs) I was going to talk about a movie because, okay, you guys, I don't know what's happening, but Tyler has gotten into my brain and I don't really watch movies as much anymore. Oh, in that way. I was like, (laughs) I got into your brain, so you watched a movie? That don't sound like me at all. No, the opposite. No, I have hbo max though and i kept seeing this ad for like this new denzel jared leto rami malik i was like what is this movie like the little things and so it's one (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry listeners if you can hear my cat just chattering away in the background (laughs) anyway y'all it's on hbo max i watched it it's amazing denzel's a cop there's murders and stuff. It's so good. It had been a while since I'd seen a movie that good. So I highly, highly recommend it if you have HBO Max. I think it's only streaming until like the end of February. So totally watch it. Don't miss out. Oh, is that how movies are happening now? Like they stop streaming after like a month? I honestly don't know because I know this is like the second movie that's done this on HBO Max where it launches on HBO Max at the same time it does at the theaters. Are the theaters open? Do people go to the movies anymore? I don't even know. I don't know. You're like, honestly, I never went in the first place. <laughs> I didn't. But I wonder, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic of this, you know, Panini Press panorama, people talking about like, could this be the resurgence of drive-in movie theaters? And has it been? Yeah, I think so. I think there was a new one that popped up here in Dallas, which is kind of weird, but it happened. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, if you're looking for some fun entertainment and this podcast isn't enough and you've already seen that movie, maybe you haven't hopped over to Patreon and listened to our murder minis because they're there. There's a new one coming out this Thursday. We're recording it right after this. So we know you're going to really enjoy it. But we have a few thank yous. Thank you so much to all of our new Patreoners. We absolutely love getting those emails that we've got new people joining. I want to welcome Catherine Turner, Amelia Gossman, 
Catherine Richard, and Jennifer Winters. Welcome, you guys, to the Blood and Wine family. Yes, Catherine, Amelia, Catherine, and Jennifer, thank y'all so much for joining the Patreon family. We hope y'all are loving the murder mini episodes we hope y'all are loving being part of the family and if y'all joined us for our drink with us that was on friday this past friday if you're listening to this episode when it came out if you're listening to this in the future it was further in the past but thank y'all so much I also want to give an extra special thank you to Katherine Turner. So in an episode, I don't know, many episodes ago, I was talking about how I'd never had mince pie before and was interested. I think it was when we did Peter Sutcliffe, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyways, she actually sent us a package with not only mince pies, but also the newspaper article about Peter Sutcliffe. And yes, Catherine, I will absolutely be sharing them with Brittany. I put them in the freezer so that they could stay fresh and we can eat them together. But I am so excited. Thank you so, so much. I finally got them. Yeah, the post office was definitely not your friend in this situation. And like a month later, you finally got them. Yeah, I am. Um, I did get an entire Ikea bag full of mail all at once. So I'm like, okay, post office, what happened here? But hey. I, I have them. I'm so excited to eat them and to share them with Brittany. So again, thank you so much, Catherine. So this week's episode topic actually came out of a joke that I was making. Tyler and I were talking, as we do, on a weekly basis, and we say, what's the topic? A daily basis is what you meant. Please, please point out a week where we only talked once, ever. Well, I wasn't saying that. I was saying once a week we talk about this and this being picking a topic. But you're right. We talk daily. You got to let everyone know, I guess, apparently. You're like, she calls me every day. Am I wrong? Generally around the same time. Sometimes I'll get that call at 9.15. Then there's the one at noon. And then there's the one at 5.30. He loves it. Yeah, when Brittany hasn't called me in the afternoon call by six, I call her. And thus, I have won the game. So, okay, no, we're talking. And I made a joke. And I was like, I don't know. Let's talk about, like, hunters and stuff. And I've been reading a lot of, like, fantasy books and shit. So, like, maybe that's where that came from. But then we were thinking, we were like, actually, what if we did hunting murders? And I don't know about you guys, but Tyler and I both had to read The Most Dangerous Game in high school. And that Mm -hmm. just was really creepy and scary and came into play. And thus, we have our topic. Yes, we do. Our topic, hunting murders. Also, I don't know about you, but when you say hunting murders, I think I must have watched a lot more CSI as a kid than you did. Because about half our topics, we say them and I'm like, ah, yes, like this one case I think I saw on CSI. Oh, geez. But I I have a very specific image of my mind. I think it was how the episode opened. But this couple like running through the woods away from a killer And they run into a campsite of other campers and they're like, help us, help us. And the killer shoots them all. And I think there's like one survivor who's got away or whatever. But I think that was an episode of CSI. But yeah, when we said hunting murders, that's where my mind went. That's horrifying. I think that means we need some wine. So Tyler, what wine are you drinking today? Today, I'm drinking the 2019 Crypsis Petite Syrah from Lodi, California. This wine, it is described as an elegant red. It has beautiful, deep ruby color and aromas of plum, raspberry, and blackberry. It's secondary flavors of 
cocoa and black pepper add a nice complexity. And like the aromas, the main flavors are plum, raspberry, blackberry, and that black pepper. This is described as a full-bodied red. I will reserve judgment because the last couple full-bodied reds have not been very full-bodied. And last one I had was barely red. So... (laughs) True. But yeah, it's 14.5%, which is perfect because I need that today. And it pairs well with Gruyere or Pecorino, which do you just eat Pecorino? Pecorino is like parm. Personally, I don't like eating cheeses that are like that hard. I kind of do. I could munch on just a, a wedge of parm. I'm not going to. Anyways, also with roast or spiked pork loin and upscale dinner parties. So dinner parties that... I will not bring my tomato aspic to. Right. Not at an upscale Uh, party. Anyways, this label is very interesting. It's like a matte black with shiny gold line drawing of like a science beaker. And above it is a just an artful representation of I think a grapevine grown out of it. Oh, that's really cool. I thought it was an octopus. Yeah, me too. It kind (laughs) of looks like an octopus. It kind of looks like the Starbucks lady. It kind of looks like Medusa. Kind of looks like a lot of things. But what does it taste like? That's the real question. I'm betting not a Sauvignon Blanc, but I don't want to bet that hard. I would have said that about the last one, and (laughs) then lo and behold. Exactly. You just never know anymore. Red, white. can never be sure? Nothing is guaranteed. Oh, it's a complaining cork. I mean, I guess I'm screwing (laughs) something into it, so I would complain too. There you go. Does this one smell like Chardonnay? Very fruity smell. Oh, she dark. Oh my god, it's lapping the rim. Okay, it is (laughs) inches. Well, at least one inch from the rim. (laughs) Ooh, from what splashed onto my hand, I'm also getting like a little bit of notes of honey, but not sweetness. Oh. So, yeah. Mmm, it smells very fruity, very raspberry. It smells good. Okay, I'm going to let that breathe while you tell us about your wine. Yes. I am doing the 2020 Criterion, or maybe Criterion. I don't really know. It starts with a C, but it's a Sauvignon Blanc from the Marlborough region in New Zealand. And I'm very excited mm. about this one. It just, it seems like your classic Marlborough. I haven't done a white wine in quite a while, so this one just called to me, and the label is so pretty and like this teal. Ooh, it's almost like a Tiffany Blue wine bottle. Almost, it really is. This is a crisp Sauvignon Blanc with aromas of passion fruit, lime, and orange blossom. And the flavors are ripe nectarine, grapefruit, and lemongrass. So, mm. you guys, I'm oh my God. so excited. My mouth just watered. It pairs really well with halibut and lemon butter, oysters, and a quinoa salad. So this is going to be one of those beautifully balanced wines with a very clean finish. It's a screw top, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want to drink it. Whoa, watch out for the rim. You're going to overfill it. No, I'm not. He's been holding that one in ever since I said it. You're not wrong. What does it smell like? It smells like I'm getting like this nectarine kind of peach and grass and lemon. Damn, I wish I was drinking that. I mean, I'm excited for my petite Syrah, but damn, that sounds good. I haven't had a good Sauvignon Blanc in a hot minute. Yeah, I got this one at Whole Foods. 
and I'm really excited about it. I think it was like 13 for the bottle. Maybe it was 12 So a, a few dollars more than what I normally spend, but also it was Whole Foods. So if I found it somewhere else, it was probably $10. let us let us go ahead and cheers. Let's enjoy these wines. Let's do it. All right. Cheers. Che- cheers. Tyler, you look a little quizzical over there. What's going on? Part of me thinks my palate is just a lot more developed for cheaper wines. This is another one I got from the wine subscription thing. So it's like a, I don't know, 20 something dollar bottle that I didn't pay that for it. It's interesting. I feel like they're complex. Yeah. It like all of the senses are telling you when you first sip it, oh, this is going to be sweet, but there's no like sugared to it. It's very fruity and it's, I'm really getting that flavor of honey. That's so Which, weird. Yeah, and not like a floral, but you know how honey kind of is like that complex, little bit of bitter, little bit of like almost a woody flavor yeah. that honey has? Beef on it, yeah. Yeah, it has that but no sweetness, but it is very fruity, so it's like, watch out, it's a sugar bomb. Just kidding, no, it's very complex. Do you like it? Or is that still up for debate? Mm, no, not really. I mean- It's a solid wine. It's not my general flavor profile that I would go to. I think when I have wines that do have that fruit forward flavor, I like it to be some of those like, I don't know, harsher fruits, like black cherry, blackberry, like darker fruits, I guess. Right. This one says blackberry in it. And yeah, I can see that. But it's very raspberry heavy. And I think that's just not a flavor profile I typically enjoy in wine, at least In this one in particular, I don't know. It is definitely full-bodied. I've had better Petite Syrahs. Yeah. But again, better for my flavor profile. I give it three out of five stars. Two and a half. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't give it three out of five. Three out of five means it's good. So like the- And what world is a 60 good? I mean, yeah, Ds get degrees, but like- (laughs) (laughs) No. So the way I do it, one star, you can't even drink it. Two stars, it's not good. Three stars, it was good. Four stars, it was great. Five stars, it was amazing. And I will absolutely have this again. This is one I'm not going to be able to forget. I will remember this wine. Okay, 2.25 stars. That's also how I rate my books. If anyone ever wonders when I tell them like this was a three star book, it doesn't mean I hated it. It means it's good. It means I will never read it again. And it wasn't great, but it's good. Well, this wine... This wine's great. I bet. I, I mean, <laughs> has a Sauvignon Blanc from Marlboro ever been bad? No, I've had some I like a lot more than others. This one is very oh. much on that passion fruit and lemon. And it's definitely lemon. It's So the reason I'm giving this a four out of five and not a five out of five, I'm not getting key lime as much as I'm getting lemon. Oh. So let me see. I'm looking at the back again. It did say, yeah, it said lemongrass, and it said the aroma of lime, maybe lime skins, but I get more nectarine and stuff on the nose, but it's a solid wine. This is a really good one. It's got all of those like passion fruit, lemongrass, complex flavors. I'm a big, big fan. I do wish it had a little bit more. I'm not getting much of the peach and nectarine in the taste. It's more just in the aroma. So I wish I was tasting that a little bit more. That kind of mango peach. Yeah. Which those are two very different fruits. like white fleshy fruit though. Yes. I do wish it had a little bit more of that. But 
this is a solid one. This is one that I will absolutely be getting again. Y'all need to sit back, buckle up, grab your wine, grab your loved ones. Maybe don't listen to this episode with your loved ones. Or do, if that's what you do. If you're like, let's relive our 1940s family radio uh, fantasy and all like gather in the living room listening to the podcast. And this is your podcast choice to do that. Power to y'all. That's weird. But um, hey, get ready because my case is a fucking whirlwind. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Y'all, I know who he's about to say he's doing and I am not ready. My case is about serial killer Robert Hansen. The sources that I used, I used his Wikipedia page, his Murderpedia page, and then an article from All That's Interesting by Katie Serena. So we mentioned the book, The Most Dangerous Game, earlier in the episode. This is a book that was written in 1924, which as of 2020, is now in the public domain, so you can find it, read it, download it, all for free. And it is written by author Richard Connell. And the book, it's about, it's a story of a wealthy Russian man who is like a hunter. He's bored with hunting animals, so he lures this other hunter to his island and starts hunting him for sport. This was such a fucked up book for us to read in high school. I know. I feel like I read it when I was like, I don't know, 13, 14, like ninth grade. I was about to say, was it even high school or was it like eighth grade, like middle school? Like, I really don't remember, but... We didn't read books in middle school. We had our big ass English textbook that had like 30 page excerpts. I forgot about what that too. fucked up public school did we go to? <laughs> no books. Just this one. You have this one book that has previews of 50 other books, and you can pretend that you've read them by reading this excerpt. I mean, basically, like, I always thought I'd read Diary of a Young Girl, the Anne Frank's diary. No, I read like 25 pages of it that was in our school textbook excerpt. But regardless, I think I've read the whole Most Dangerous Game. And anyways, the idea that it presented of people hunting people, it captivated people. But, you know, it's a story. It's fiction. Just kidding. In the 70s, it became very real. What? In the case of Robert Hansen. Oh, my God. I thought you were talking about multiple people. Like, it was a thing. People started doing it. There was a game. I didn't know where you were going. I got scared. Uh, No, but Robert Hansen, he started playing his own version of the most dangerous game. He was also known as the Butcher Baker. So Robert Hansen, he was born in Esterville, Iowa in 1939. He was the son of a baker, and he himself would also later become a baker, hence the Butcher Baker. Which also, I'm like, that's that's a lame name. That just sounds like you're like walking down the street and being like, oh, yep, hardware store, butcher, baker, mailbox, post office, I mean, not just mailbox. <laughs> but I'm like, mm, okay. But you'll see why he's called the Butcher Baker. In his childhood, he did not have an easy life. He worked long hours in the bakery, and he was naturally left-handed, but he was forced to use his right hand, which I forget was a thing. That, like, being left-handed meant you were, like, from the devil or something. Why are people so stupid? Like, why was that a thing? But they would, like, beat kids for, like, using their left hand and force them to write with their right hand. So he endured that. And because of that, he developed a lifelong stutter. As a teenager, he was very shy. He had really bad acne. And he was made fun of for his stutter. The boys at school were, like, assholes to him. And the girls that he liked were like, ew, get the fuck away from me. And because he didn't get this attention he wanted, he started hating attractive women and... 
had these fantasies of enacting his cruel revenge because, sorry, dude, people are going to reject you. Maybe don't be a monster about it. Like, I don't know. Maybe I should have more sympathy. I don't. I was made fun of and rejected a lot in school. And I mean, now I have a murder podcast, so. (laughs) But I don't enact revenge fantasies because I, for one, think that the best, like, not even form of revenge, but the best response to that is to just literally not give a shit about them. It's so true. Like, don't don't show attention to those people. No. And I mean, like, when you're a kid going through it, that's difficult. That's hard. But I mean, like, as an adult now, I feel like the meanest thing you can do to, like, get back at someone like that who clearly wants attention and wants to bother you is to just not give any shits about it. Because what is worse, like, what hits closer to home to people like that than just full on being ignored? I mean, just don't be an asshole to people. Throughout his, like, childhood and his teenage years, Hansen, he was, like, this quiet and loner kid. He did not have a good relationship with his father, who was like very domineering. And he started to practice both hunting and archery and like spent a lot of time doing both. And through that, he became like a very avid game hunter. And he would like channel his rage and these like revenge fantasies of like vengeance into stalking and hunting animals. Jeez. Yeah, not the kind of person I want to have like you know, a gun and a bow and arrow and all that shit. No, there's way too many emotions behind what he's doing. Like, I don't think you should ever be using hunting as a way to get out your frustration. Like, this just sounds like a recipe for a bad fucking idea. Yep. So what did he do next? In 1957, he enlisted in the army. He served one year before he was discharged. And afterwards, he moved to Pocahontas, Iowa. And he was like a drill sergeant or a drill instructor at a police academy there. And when he lived in Iowa, he started a relationship with a younger woman. And in 1960, they got married. So, I mean, it seemed like he was this normal dude, but he wasn't. He very much still felt like very mistreated by the community and he wanted like retaliation. So in 1960, when he was 21... He convinced a young bakery employee, like one of the people who worked for him, because he also, he like owned a bakery here in Iowa. He always owns bakeries. That's his thing. Right. Because he's a baker, the butcher baker. Yeah. But he convinced one of his young employees to help him burn down a school bus garage. Okay. Number one, how do you get that idea? Number two, how do you convince someone to do that with you? I don't know. I also didn't know school buses lived in garages. Well, they got to live somewhere. The bus barn. I think that's what it is. It is, but it's just a field of buses, or at least it was where we're from. (laughs) Maybe in Iowa, they've actually got a roof. (laughs) When he gets it's a small town, like two buses, then yeah. Anyways, though, the boy, after they burned down the school bus garage, the boy later confessed and Hanson was arrested. After being arrested, he was like sentenced, sent to jail. His wife divorced him. Because she was like, what the fuck? <laughs> she was just like... Why did you burn down the school bus garage? What the fuck is wrong with you? And she's doing this while laughing and handing him the papers. Yeah. When he was in prison, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which at the time they called manic depression. Uh, and he also had periodic schizophrenic episodes. The psychiatrist that diagnosed him also noted that he had an infantile personality 
and an obsession with getting back at people that he had felt wronged him. Well, we already knew that. Yeah, but now it's diagnosed and like on the record. His sentence was three years for the arson, but he was released after just 20 months. And kind of throughout the years after that, he was jailed a few more times for like petty theft and stuff. But he still managed to find himself a new wife. They got married. And then in 1967, he and his wife moved to Anchorage, Alaska from Iowa. Very, very far. Like really getting away from his entire previous life. Very much so. Also, at this time, like, Anchorage is by no means huge today, but it's like 300,000 people or so. Like, it's a, it's a city. In 1967, though, Anchorage was like 45,000 people. Like, it's a town. Wow. It's nothing. Also, fun fact, in the, I think, 60s into the 80s and to the early 90s, the Anchorage airport was one of the biggest and busiest airports in the world. Why? Well, because... The way it's positioned between the U.S. and Eurasia, during the Cold War, flights cannot fly, couldn't fly over Russia, or the USSR, Soviet Union. And also, flights don't fly over the North Pole, and they don't really, at this time, and a little bit still now, they don't fly directly over the Pacific Ocean, because you don't want to be, like, six hours away from the nearest airport if something goes wrong. So a shit ton of flights going from Eurasia to North America would have a stopover in Anchorage to, like, refuel and stuff. So basically any huge international flight you took, if it didn't cross the Atlantic, it stopped in Anchorage. So this tiny-ass town basically has, like, I don't know, pictured Atlanta's airport. Just boom. Big airport. Like, the airport is probably what drives and runs the city as far as like jobs and everything are concerned like everyone works at the airport i mean it was the airport and oil yeah nowadays anchorage airport does not have many passenger planes going to it but still has a shit ton of cargo planes going to it because midway point to asia so what happens when you're flying from like hawaii you're in the pacific ocean like where do you go where's the nearest airport are you just screwed Hawaii and San Francisco. That is why for the longest time, the only flights that were allowed to fly to Hawaii from the US were like massive jumbo jets, even if they couldn't fill all the seats and stuff, because this is getting a little bit into it. But let's talk about ETOPS for a second. It was a law that basically said, if you wanted to fly further than essentially like two hours from an airport, you had to have multiple engines. Oh, because in case if one, one failed, mm-hmm. but like between Hawaii and San Francisco and LA, there there is no, so only jumbo jets could fly. But nowadays, that's not the rules. But yeah, I like planes. My case actually does involve planes a little bit later on. But anyways, Anchorage this time, it's a small town. In Anchorage, he and his wife, they have two children, and he has a generally quiet life. His neighbors like him. He opened up a small bakery, and he also loves hunting. And he even set, like, many different hunting records. But, obviously, he was not this nice guy that everyone thought he was. In December of 1971, Hansen was arrested twice. Once for the abduction and attempted rape of a housewife, and another time for raping a sex worker. He pleaded no contest to assault with a deadly weapon in, um his abduction and attempted rape of the housewife and as part of the plea bargain his rape of the sex worker was dropped the charges were dropped 
That makes me mad. So he was sentenced to five years in prison. And after serving six months, he was released on like a work release program and lived at a halfway house for a little bit. So in 1973, his killing spree began. And most likely, his just full-on being able to walk free after these rapes likely, like, emboldened him. Probably. Like, this is now the second time he's been in prison. He's like, they're not going to keep me in here. Yeah. And the thing is, he's also having multiple run-ins with the law. Like, he's he's well-known by the police at this point. A couple years later, in 1976, he was arrested for... He was arrested for trying to steal a chainsaw from a Fred Meyer, which is like a face like a Walmart. But he appealed the sentence and he was released on time served after like just a couple months. During this time, he continued to hunt sex workers and exotic dancers. In 1983, so more than a decade after he moved to Anchorage, a 17-year-old girl named Cindy Paulson was found running frantically running for her life down 6th Avenue, barefoot and handcuffed. And 6th Avenue, I think, is like one of the main streets in Anchorage. A truck driver, like, saw her, stopped, and picked her up, and she was, you know, taken into safety. And she told the police her story. So what happened on June 13th of 1983, Hansen offered Cindy, who's again 17, and she's a sex worker, he offered her $200 to perform oral sex on him. But when she got in the car, he pulled a gun on her and drove to his house. At the house, he held her captive and he proceeded to torture and rape her. He then chained her by the neck to a post in the basement and just went and took a nap on the couch. Y'all can't see my face, but oh my god. I don't even... That took a turn and I, d- I don't know why I wasn't prepared for it. Yeah. When he woke up from his nap... He put her in his car, and he took her to the Merrill Field Airport, which is not the main airport there in Anchorage. It's, like, a more local one with, like, private flights and stuff. And he told her that he was going to take her out to his cabin. And his cabin, it's this, like, shack in the Matanuska Valley in Alaska. And pretty much you can only get there by, like, boat or plane. Like, it's remote as fuck. A lot of Alaska is. So he owns a plane. Like, he has his own plane. That's not weird. In Alaska, a lot of people do. Right. It's like being somewhere where you go places by water, having a boat. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like living in Florida or something and having a boat. But yeah, he's taking her to the airport and he's like, I'm going to take you to my cabin. Meanwhile, she is crouched in the backseat of the car. Her hands are like cuffed in front of her. And he's outside the car. He's loading the plane's cockpit. And she's like, okay, this is my chance to get out of here. Because he has his back turned to her. So she crawls out of the back seat, opens the driver's side door, and sprints. And she made it to 6th Avenue. She also made sure to leave her blue sneakers in the passenger side floorboard of the back, in the back seat of the car as evidence that she was in there. Hansen saw her running away. He panics. He starts chasing her. But Cindy made it to 6th Avenue. She was able to flag down a truck. And the driver sees her. She's like disheveled. She's clearly been attacked. I mean, she still has cuffs around her hands. Uh, The driver stops and picks her up and drives her to a nearby like motel, the Mush Inn. When he gets her there, she like jumps out of the truck, runs inside and is like pleading with the hotel clerk to call her boyfriend who he's at a different motel, the Big Timber Motel. And the truck driver was like, I guess I'm going to go back to like 
heading to work and he calls the police i assume from his like like his truck radio okay ham radio i was like sitting here waiting and being like why is no one calling the police well like so the clerk is like basically like we we've got her like we're taking care of her and so he's like deuces i'm gonna call the police so they're kind of making sure that she's safe so the anchorage police department they arrive at the mush inn but the clerk there is like Oh, we put her in a cab to take her to the Big Timber Motel. That's where she said, like, her boyfriend was. So that's where she is. So the police, they get to the Big Timber Motel. They find Cindy. She's still handcuffed. They take her to the police headquarters. There she describes, she tells them everything that happened, and she describes the man who did it. And Hanson fit this description perfectly. I feel like he had a unique look, didn't he? He had a unique look. But also, Cindy would, like described his stutter. She was able to identify his plane. But the police were really reluctant to bring him in. Why? Why when they know it's him? Well, she described him perfectly. And the thing is, again, the police know him. He's been arrested multiple times. Once for raping a sex worker. Once for kidnapping and trying to rape a housewife. But the community really liked him. He was the local baker. And, I mean, they did bring him in to question him. And in the questioning, he admitted that, like, yeah, I I met with her, but she's just setting me up because I wouldn't pay crazy amount of money she wanted for the sex acts. And he also got a really good alibi from one of his friends. This makes me so mad because this guy is a convicted felon, and yet they're Mm. still believing him over her. Oh, yeah. When I'm like, literally, she's cuffed. And clearly been attacked, but they let him go. Meanwhile, outside of Anchorage, like outside of the central part of town, the Alaska State Troopers, they're hunting a serial killer. So several sex workers and dancers had gone missing, and the troopers were starting to find bodies around Anchorage, Seward, and the Matanuska Sasitna Valley. The first of the bodies that was found was found by construction workers near Eklutna Road. In July of 1980. And this victim was dubbed Eklutna Annie by the investigators. And she's to this day never been identified. Oh my god. Later that year in 1980, the body of Joanna Messina was found in a gravel pit near Seward. And then in 1982, the remains of a 23-year-old named Sherry Morrow were discovered in a shallow grave near the Knick River. So no one is attaching all of these murdered women to this sex worker who showed up no and i don't know if it was because because cindy paulson she was attacked and escaped in 1983 and the three bodies of these victims had been found by then right i don't know if it's miscommunication between the anchorage pd and the alaska state troopers I don't know. But the detectives investigating this serial killer, they contacted FBI special agent John Douglas to get his help building a criminal psychological profile. Our boy JD. In so many more cases than I ever would have thought. Yeah, this, he talks about this one, I'm pretty sure, in Mindhunter. I think I've read that chapter. John Douglas thought that whoever the serial killer was, they would be an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, they had a history of being rejected by women, and they'd be compelled to keep souvenirs of the murders, such as, like, jewelry. He also suggested that the serial killer might have a stutter, 
When they know these kinds of things, man, I don't even know. How do you, how do you know that? I don't, I have no idea. There are just so many things about psychology and the way the mind works that we just, it's just phenomenal I know. to me. But I just, how can you, going off of a victim's body, you know, how they were killed, how they were buried and stuff, and be like, I bet the killer had a stutter. Right. I know. Because even being able to be like, I bet they were, they're dominantly left-handed, but grew up being forced to use their right hand. Maybe you can tell that on like knife wounds, the way it is. I don't know. Maybe. But a stutter? Like, I have no idea how you could tell. Yeah, I don't understand it either. I I really don't. I don't know how they put together a lot of these profiles because they are able to come up with such minute details that I'm like, but how'd you do that? And it's it's patterns. It's all a series of patterns and a a lot more that goes into it. But I, I know that that's at least a part of it. Yeah. Either way, though, JD knew the guy had a stutter. And so using this profile they built, the investigators started looking into possible suspects until they reached Hansen, who not only perfectly fit this profile, but also owned a plane and a cabin in the Matanuska Susitna Valley area. Honestly, though, it's like if you're going to be a murderer, if you're going to be a serial killer, why are you doing it in Alaska when it was this small? Like, I feel like the pool of people, small in comparison. But also that means the police department and their resources are small. And with how much wilderness there is, easy to hide a body. You're right. No, that is very, very accurate. But apparently he is not a very good killer because they're finding the bodies. Or he doesn't give a shit and he's not even trying to hide them. Well, or there's just that many. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, you did not just say that. I did. So after zeroing in on Hansen, police obtained a warrant to search his plane, his car, and his house. And what they found shocked them. So Hansen would mainly target sex workers and exotic dancers around the Anchorage area. He would kidnap the women and fly them in his private plane out to his cabin. The women who didn't fight back, he would rape them and then bring them back to town and threaten them to stay silent. Threaten that if they spoke any word, he would find them and kill them. His victims, though, that did fight back, they were hunted. So he's in the middle of nowhere. When I say like middle of nowhere, Alaska is a whole fucking another thing. Like it's not middle of nowhere like a cabin in Montana even. Where it's like there's no one for miles. It's like there is no one for miles. There not might not be another person around you in like a state-sized area. That's crazy. That is lonely. That is big. Yeah, like if you popped the, I don't know, What's a decent sized state? South Carolina. Over this cabin, there might not be another person. Or there might just be a few dozen in that entire area. Hard pass on living that remote. Hard pass. Yeah. So he's taken his victims out into the literal middle of nowhere. And he would set them free. No. And he'd give them a head start. And so, you know, they would start running thinking, okay, this is my chance to escape. And as they would run for their lives, he would then start tracking them down, taking his time, and hunting them like he was hunting game, like he was hunting animals. This is the sickest thing ever. It's literally the Mm -hmm. most dangerous game. This is... Yeah. He would arm himself with a hunting knife and a rifle. I mean, he would torture these women with this chase that would last for hours or 
days at a time until he tracked them down and shot them or stabbed them to death. So while the police were searching Hansen's home, they found an aviation map of the area, like of the area his cabin was in, and it was like hidden in the headboard of his bed. I don't know what that means, if it's like a cloth headboard and it's like, oh, shoved it in, or if there's like a secret compartment. But either way, it is an aviation map of Alaska, and there are tiny X's. No. All over it. No. I knew you were going to say that. God, I was hoping that my head was wrong, and you weren't going to say it's a map with X's all over it, and it is, and that's happening right now, and I cannot believe it. But that's why he hid it. Why else would he have hidden the map? Yeah. And police looking at this, they realized that some of these X marks, they matched up where they had found bodies. And so they started counting how many of these X's are there. And they counted 24 in all. Oh my god, I was so wrong because there were what? They had found three? Yeah, they'd found three. And he'd been doing this for 10 years. So in the psychological profile that John Douglas created, he also predicted the murderer would keep these souvenirs and he was right on that note too because in hansen's basement they found a stash of jewelry and specifically one of the things they found in it was a necklace that they knew belonged to one of the victims and so they realized holy shit this is a box of his trophies yep that's it that's the box so in 1984 he was put on trial and they had overwhelming evidence at this point. I mean, they had Cindy's eyewitness testimony. They had everything. And so Hansen confessed to murdering 17 women and raping another 30 women over a 12-year period. Because remember, only some of the victims he would take out to the cabin he would murder. No, I didn't realize that. Hansen was sentenced to 461 years plus life in prison without parole Good. in 1984. And he was imprisoned in the Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward, Alaska, where he died in prison in 2014. But as part of his plea bargain, Hansen was only ever charged in four of the 17 murders that he confessed to. What? Yeah. And a lot of people believe he killed more than 20 women, that each of these exes represent a victim, a body buried. Yes, that's what my assumption would be too. Why else would you X them out? I mean, exactly. But in exchange, as part of his like plea bargain for this reduced conviction of just being charged with four of the murders, Hansen agreed to assist police in locating the remaining bodies that were on his kill map. Because while there are X's for where they are, Alaska's fucking huge. You know, this X could be a 2,000 acre area. Totally. It's a big area. If it's a whole aerial map and there's an X, that's a big space. Unfortunately, though, by the time he died, five of the bodies had still not been found. And he pretty much took the secret of their locations to the grave. And that is the case of serial killer Robert Hansen, the butcher baker, the real most dangerous game. I'd heard this case before, and there's clearly so much of it that I blocked out of my memory. I have never heard of this case in my entire life. Like, we were doing hunting murders, and I was like, you know, it'd be really interesting if I could find, like, a most dangerous game type hunting instead of, like, you know, well, out hunting. And then I found this, and I was like, oh, th that is exactly what I found. Yeah, he was the hunter-murderer. That yeah. was him. 
Yours is literally one of the most messed up cases ever. Ever. Hunting yeah. hunting humans is game. There's so much that's messed up about that that I can't even begin to think of how to describe how fucked up that is. I mean, it, it is like the most fucked up thing I have ever heard of. Yes, it is. So on that note, Brittany, why don't you tell me about the case you're bringing to today's episode? I'll be covering the case of the death of Karen Wood. The sources I used, two articles from the Bangor Daily News. Oh, Maine. Maine. One we're very familiar with because of Stephen King. Neither of us have been there, but we will one day. Mm -hmm. One of these articles was contributed, and the other was by John Holyoke. And then I also found an article in the New York Times by James Howard Kunstler. And this was a digitized article from September of 1989. Karen Wood and her husband Kevin moved to the Bangor area with their infant twin girls in July 1988. They were from Davenport, Iowa, and that was where Kevin was in grad school. They both grew up in a very small upstate city of Binghampton, New York. They met in high school and married a few years later. A month after they arrived in Maine, the Woods moved to a new house. It was a slate blue Cape Cod home, and it was the last house near the end of a one-street subdivision called Treadwell Acres in the town of Herman, which was a few miles west of the Bangor city line. This area, like 10 years before, it was completely just a forest, but... It turned into this, like, up-and-coming suburb with industrial parks and new homes. Just like, Hmm. again, this is what happens. Land gets developed, and it turns from land to houses. So, one thing. I know Bangor isn't on the ocean, but I'm just saying, there is nothing better than forests that jut right up to the ocean. Like, walking out of a forest onto, like, a pebbly beach in the ocean, and it's all gray and misty. I think I just miss Washington. It's, like, literally the best of both worlds. Because, like, in Washington, although not only you have, like, the beach, the forest, but you also have the mountains. Yes. And I know you miss that. Uh, But also, don't think I didn't clock that Miss Hannah Montana best of both worlds. That's a Hannah Montana thing. You are from a different generation. You're not. You're from the same. We're both millennials. Yeah, we are. But I didn't watch Hannah Montana. Well, you were wrong then. I just didn't have time. I think I was probably 20. Didn't have time. You were busy in college and grad school. Well, I'm like, can't get the best. Okay. But yes, they're in this beautiful, forested, main, new development. Go. And then there was this other gentleman, Don Rogerson. He was 45 years old, and he was the produce manager of the neighborhood supermarket in Bangor. So, you know, right there, city over. He was also a Boy Scout leader and a lifelong hunter. At about 2.45 in the afternoon on a Tuesday in November 1988, Rogerson and his hunting partner decided to go out for a hunt. So they drove out to an area, parked his pickup on a dusty turnaround, and it happened to be at the dead end of Treadwell Acres, about 200 yards past the Woods house. At the same time, Karen's inside, she's with her two kids, just having an afternoon, and she decided to take a step outside. Treadwell Acres is about five miles from Bangor International Airport, so that's really close. You gotta imagine, there are airplanes flying overhead all the time yeah and they're also at a very low altitude because they're almost at the airport 
So when you think about that, airplanes are loud. Like, we know this. My last apartment was right by the airport. It was similar in this, like, five-mile proximity. You hear the planes all the time and loud enough to where they interrupt your conversation. Yeah. So there's a good possibility that when Karen stepped out of her house, she probably didn't hear these hunters and they may not have even heard her. It's already a loud environment. So Rogerson and his friend, they're out hunting and then all of a sudden, Rogerson sees a deer. And so he gets ready and he fired two shots in succession. Rogerson later said that he doesn't really recollect a lot after the first shot So he fired at the deer, and at the same exact time, he saw two white flags, like two white things. And so he shot again. At the flags? Yes. And this will make more sense when I get further into the case. But those two white, quote-unquote, flags, two white things that he saw, those were Karen Wood's mittens. After the second shot, Rogerson hurried across the clearing to see what he got, and this is when he sees Karen Wood crumple to the ground. He immediately bends down, and at first, he just sees, like, a little bit of blood on her shoulder, and so he's relieved. He's like, oh my gosh, it just, like, the bullet just skidded right by her. But then he saw a wound in her upper chest. Karen was still breathing, but with difficulty, and Rogerson put some type of compress on her wound and started screaming for an ambulance. He picked her up, and then he put her back down a few feet away, and his hunting partner, Peter, was running to a house for help. And it happened to be the house of a woman named Cheryl Hamlet. I'm sorry, who hunts and faces their gun towards a house? I don't give a fuck if it is a, there's a field of deer in between you and this house or this neighborhood. You are pointing a gun. Bullets go further than you can see. Bullets go further than you intend. You do not shoot in the direction of anything other than empty fucking space. You're getting at a really big point that we'll get to in this case. You're totally seeing why I picked this one, because this is a little bit different than what we normally do. Yeah. So at around 3.30, Cheryl Hamlin, she heard the two shots and then the shouts for help. And she thought that maybe one of the hunters was hurt. And so she called the county sheriff's office in Bangor. Shortly afterward, though, Peter Anderson, the hunting partner of Rogerson, he came to her door. And then another hunter that happened to be in the area, he came out of the woods and said that a young girl had been shot and it was really bad. Cheryl called the sheriff's office a second time, and then an ambulance arrived about 12 minutes later. Kevin, who worked at the local hospital, he was alerted, and he was actually told his son had been shot, and he, like, doesn't have a son, and he was really confused. And so he, like, drives home, like, having no idea, like, what's going on. He gets closer to the house, and he sees all these cop cars and an ambulance, and he's like, what the fuck? He gets home, and that's when they tell him that Karen has been shot, and that she's died. Roger stayed at the scene, and he admitted pulling the trigger. He was immediately taken in handcuffs to the county jail in downtown Bangor and booked on a manslaughter charge. There he remained until the following morning, where he was released on a $20,000 bail. Karen's body was not removed from the scene until 8.30 p.m. Oh my god, so her husband got home. She's still laying there, like, on the porch. Yeah. And one of the things that made this case very unique and interesting and just, like, complicated 
is that because this was a hunting accident, the game warden was who was called to the scene. Really? Yeah. Like, so there's no, like, homicide detectives. None of that is going on. Okay. That, why wouldn't both be there? I mean. Well, again, (sighs) that is a big question. So hunting is, like, something that's major in Maine. And I'll get into more detail later, but that's one of the livelihoods of this whole area. And so this is not the first time something like this has happened. Yeah. They did do an investigation, and it was later determined that Karen Wood was only 130 feet from her house when she was struck down. She was five feet inside her own property line. So she was in her backyard. Yeah. So one of the questions is, why did she go outside? Number one, I don't really know why that's a question. It's her own fucking house. If she wants to go outside, she should be able to go outside. She fucking wanted fresh air. Or it doesn't fucking matter. It's her own property. What? Yeah. No, I don't get why that's a question. I don't either. So there are thoughts that like, you know, obviously she stepped outside just for a moment because her twins were still in the house. Maybe she went outside because she saw the hunters and she wanted to warn them that they were too close to her house. Most likely she did see the hunters or their truck. Again, because it's right outside her house. Yeah. After further investigation... They placed Don Rogerson 189 feet from Karen Wood when he shot her. This means that Rogerson was 319 feet from the Woods' house. And under Maine law at the time, a hunter can discharge a firearm no closer to a house than 300 feet. Okay, first off, 300 feet means nothing to a bullet. Also... Why can it not be 300 feet from the property line? I know. Also, the fact that he's 180 feet from her. 180 feet is nothing. He could see her. I don't care if he's tunnel visioning in on this deer. Yeah, we're literally talking about a football field's distance, and he's at the 50-yard line. Yeah, basically. He's a football field's distance from the house. Exactly. Yeah, he's a football field's distance from the house. She's on the 50-yard line, and he shoots her. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that's really close. You can see the difference between, like, a human being and a deer. I mean, granted, there's not forests in football fields, but still. So, the days following the incident, there was a lot of talk about Rogerson's good character in the local newspaper and on television news shows. He was a solid citizen, a most wonderful kind person, one of the neighbors said. And the Bangor Daily News labeled the death of Karen Wood and the arrest of Don Rogerson as a double tragedy. I don't give a shit how great of a person he is. He killed a woman who was in her backyard. Very few details were talked about in the news about Karen, except for the fact that she was the mother of twins, that the family was from out of state, And that when she was shot, she had been wearing white mittens, which might have made it easy to mistake her for a white-tailed deer. Seriously? Yeah. Can you say victim blaming? Yeah. Are they like, well, she wouldn't have been shot if she only wore reflective orange. It's her fault. I know. Wow. One of the wardens later told Kevin that there was not one bit of evidence indicating that a deer had been in the area around the house, let alone in the line of fire. There was, number one, no deer body, no blood, no hair, no droppings, and no tracks. There was not a deer. So he saw a flash of white and shot. Pretty much. 
towards a house. Like, my thing is, he parked in this neighborhood. He knows he is in a neighborhood. He knows what directions the houses are because, you know, he passed them when driving and he faces them and shoots. I know. Like, this would be no different if she hadn't been outside. She'd been inside doing dishes by the window and the bullet came through the window. It's really not any different. And this is just such a huge part of this case because... At this point in time, like I said, like accidents like this were happening and people weren't really being held accountable for this. Doesn't sound like it. So this case was presented to a grand jury, but they did not indict Rogerson. There was an out-of-court settlement in which Kevin, her husband, received $122,000. Before the end of the month, Kevin put his house for sale, packed up, and he moved back to Binghamton which, again, was his hometown in New York and where he had buried Karen. But the death of Karen Wood, it stuck around. It stirred up a lot of the debate about the hunting and, in particular, the question of how hunting in the region played a role, especially when there were a lot of new homes being built on areas that were traditionally hunting grounds. So one newspaper said, the bullet that killed Karen Wood killed any rational debate about hunting safely. The thing that shocked me was the spontaneous effort to air every justification, every mitigation of the tragedy, and every reason why the victim might be to blame. So I agree with that. Mm-hmm. This newspaper, I... it's literally said in my source, like, newspaper man, because this was written in 89. But so, like, this journalist... He was saying exactly what this issue was. It's like the city was doing everything to say like, oh, this is an accident. This guy who was a hunter, he was this outstanding citizen and she got, she went outside and she wore white mittens and everyone in Herman should know not to wear white mittens because there are white tailed deers and there are hunters around. So like she fucked up and I'm like, no, she was in her backyard. See, to me, this same argument is like, If my hobby was I like to go out driving and I hit and killed someone in the crosswalk, but they were wearing green and they should know lights are green that mean go. And so, I mean, if they didn't want me to mistake them for a green light, they should have worn red or just not worn green. It's not my fault for, I don't know, seeing a person and, you know, flooring the gas. That's a really good analogy like oh my god i think there are definitely people that are hunters that understand gun safety and keep that as number one i do not agree with hunting i have never been in a position where i ever needed to hunt for my food and i do recognize that privilege you're shooting a gun i'm sorry but what happens when that bullet misses you're responsible for whatever happens at the other end of it if it kills someone if it goes into a tree You're responsible for that. You are shooting a gun that kills. Yeah. And this brings up a lot of questions of why is this area still a hunting ground at this point in time when it is also becoming a housing development? And 300 feet? I'm sorry. That's not far enough because like you said earlier, a bullet doesn't give a shit about 300 feet. It's going to keep going if it can. I keep using the analogy of driving because I'm like, as a driver, in the driving test, in defensive driving and stuff, you take full responsibility if what you do behind the wheel kills someone. 
if I'm driving and a pedestrian steps out in front of me and they die, it is my fault as a driver. Yep. That is my fault. That is vehicular manslaughter. How can you not take that same responsibility to someone shooting a gun? I feel like if you are going to pick up a gun and hunt, you need to recognize that there is a chance that if you miss, you will kill someone. It is your fault. Just like there is a chance that if I look at my phone for a split second and don't see someone in the crosswalk and hit them, that is my fault. And so I need to take precautions like not looking at my phone and you should take precautions like not fucking shooting towards a neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to hunt, you're responsible for whatever happens. Months after the shooting, feelings on both sides of this argument were still running very high. Some feel that the incident sullied Maine's record of hunter safety, which had been improving. And I'm kind of like, oh, I'm sorry you feel like it sullied the record by it no longer being a record because someone was shot. Like, someone lost their life. I know. I'm like, are you just completely forgetting about Karen's life and her family? Oh, your poor record. How about her family? John A. Lund, who was a publisher of the Maine Sportsman magazine and a former state attorney general, he said, Had this death not occurred, there would have been no hunting fatalities in Maine this past season. Season. And he's proud of that. And yet, he is literally saying a what if. That's false. Because it's not even a what if. Because it was a was. was. This did happen. She was shot. It's so frustrating to me when I read that. Like, yeah, if all the murders that happened last year didn't happen, there would be zero murders. Exactly. Yep. He went on to say, you're safer in the woods during hunting season than you are on the streets of Portland. And it's like, are you? Oh, dude. Also, no one's making that comparison. Your hunters aren't on the streets of the city. So what is your point? Don't minimize Karen's death. So one evening after Karen's shooting, Rogerson was greeting a crowd of sympathetic well-wishers at his store. And this is at the same time, One of Kevin's friends and colleagues, Tim Rogers, came into the store to pick up a few groceries. This, again, is in Bangor. And this is what Tim said. There was a line of people standing there, all patting him on the back, telling him he was okay, that it wasn't his fault. I waited online and shook his hand and said I was a friend of Kevin's, and that I held him totally responsible and said the thing he should do is admit publicly that this was his fault. He said, no, I couldn't understand it because I wasn't there. From the very beginning, Rogerson had admitted that a bullet from his rifle killed Karen. He said that he was deeply sorry many times, but he maintained that all along that it was an accident and that the moment he squeezed the trigger, he had a deer in his sights. So he is holding firm to that story. Car analogy. If I get into a wreck with someone because... I'm not a very good driver and I'm not paying attention. I think gloves are deer or I think people in green coats are green stoplights and kill someone. Yeah, it's a car accident. I still killed someone. It's still my fault. It's not, well, I mean, the car I was driving did hit and kill someone, but I thought the light was green. So I take no responsibility. Are you kidding me? I know. Are you kidding me? I know. That's not how this shit works. Under Maine law, manslaughter is defined as the reckless or criminally negligent killing of another human being. It can later be the result of either disregarding a known risk or failing to be aware of a risk. 
I mean, by definition, that sounds exactly like what happened. I don't understand why he was not convicted of manslaughter. That is what happened. I know. And to date, all of the facts about the Karen Wood case, as established by the state authorities, it's remained officially secret. Under Maine statutes, not only are the grand jury proceedings sealed, so is all of the evidence. So not even Kevin is fully aware of all the details around Karen's death. And legally, these files may remain sealed forever. So like I said, the grand jury did not indict Rogerson in 1989, but a year later, a second grand jury did indict him. The trial was held in October 1990, and the jury deliberated for nine and a half hours before finding Rogerson not guilty of manslaughter. Literally how? There were later interviews done with people of the jury, and they said that they believed that a deer ran in front of Rogerson before he fired the fatal shot. How's that not manslaughter? Still. I know. I know. Like, I don't care if a deer was there or not. I don't care if she was wearing white gloves that could have been mistaken for a deer. I don't care why she went outside. It's her damn property. He shot his gun. She was killed. His recklessness of shooting towards a house, towards a property, killed her. Yeah. And that's, unfortunately, that's where this ends. I don't agree with it. I know that Rogerson definitely is, has been very eaten up about it. And he's he doesn't hide that. He's very public about it. He's never hunted again. This did change his life. But what bothers me so much about this case, because, like, he made a mistake. And yeah. he owned up to it. But then he knew what, like, his story needed to be because of the way things were going. And I'm I'm not saying that that's okay. But justice was not on Karen's side. The city and a lot of the people were on the side of hunting and the hunter. And that, I think, is the big issue in this. While Rogerson, you know, yes, he lives his life in guilt. He knows what happened. He doesn't hunt again. He never received any true punishment. And like you were saying with the car example, yeah, when someone accidentally hits and kills someone, it rattles them. There's guilt. There's But, but there's also punishment. I'm like, he's racked about this every day knowing he killed someone. Good, he should be. It would be even more fucked up if he didn't. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to beat up on him and say he's fucked up and he's the one that's wrong because it's, it's not like he went through the process and the process is what failed. At the end of the day, again, whether he saw a deer or not, he killed someone. I just cannot believe that there's no justice for Karen and her family. Like, woo, they got money. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. No, there is no dollar amount that can replace a human life. No, and by no means do I feel like he murdered her or anything like that. Like, obviously, there was never intent to kill someone. Right. I don't know. I feel like I feel like the politics of the area that took too much of a role in this yeah. and blinded way too many people. And honestly, maybe it would have been different if she'd grown up in the town and been someone everyone knew. Oh, that's Karen from fifth grade. You're exactly right. A big part of this case was the fact that Karen and Kevin were outsiders. They came from somewhere else. They had recently moved into the area. 
And that's such a shitty reason. Like, people move all the time. Like, I, I hated that. But but that was a part of this case and why people were on Rogerson's side and not hers. They didn't know her. And see, whenever that plays into a case of like, well, we all know this person. Well, and this person's a stranger. We don't know them. Whenever that plays into that, no, that should have literally nothing to do. They could be unpacking their damn moving van. And this happens. And that should still have the exact same weight as, that's Miss Carrollton, who's taught at the elementary school for 60 years and taught every single one of us and our kids and our grandkids. Yeah. I will say what came out of this case were a lot of changes. So you know how I mentioned that the game wardens were the ones that investigated this? And they're not homicide detectives. They're not crime scene investigators. I'm sure there was a lot of stuff they messed up on the scene they did an investigation they did what they knew to do they looked at the trajectory of the bullets and all of that and got the distances but now i think the game wardens are trained differently and cases like this are treated differently there has definitely been a decline since this incident in the number of people who have been accidentally shot by hunters there were a lot previously i mean it was almost like one a month there for multiple years like in the 40s and 50s oh my god so things have gotten better it's no longer the case now and a lot of it came from this case because there was that half that was just as frustrated as we are that's like this is not okay this is not okay and you can't just back someone because they're a good boy in this in the city you know yeah Kevin is still haunted, obviously, by what happened. I read an article from one of these articles in the Bangor Daily News was from 2018. And, you know, he didn't let it ruin his life. He wanted to be there for his daughters. But it's always been there. It's always been there that his wife was shot and that there was never really any justice that was received for her. No. That is the case of Karen Wood. I know that was different than what we normally do. But when I thought of this whole hunting, like hunting murders, there is always that big question of what happens in a case where someone is accidentally shot by a hunter. And I thought this was a good example because it's the worst case scenario. Yeah. I mean, when you said you were bringing a very different case to it, this was not what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but this was not it. And I did not expect to get as fired up, as upset about the injustice of this because- Oh my god. I know. And it's one of those things that like, you and I, we're not gun owners. We don't like shooting guns. Like that's, we've both done it too. So for anyone who's like, you don't know what it's (laughs) like. Yes, we do. Yep. We have both shot. We've both been trained on how to shoot, how to shoot safely. I mean, we've shot guns multiple times. Like we know how to. Does that mean I ever want to own a gun? No. I don't feel comfortable being in a home where I know there is one. Absolutely not. That is something, I get it. It's a right. But also what comes with that right is responsibility. If you are going to own a gun, if you're going to use a gun, you need to be responsible for it. I mean, hunting, it's a sport. And like any other sport, if a football player tackled and, I don't know, had too much momentum, went into the audience and killed someone because of their tackle, they should be charged with manslaughter. If you shoot something, oh, it misses. Oh, just kidding. It killed a woman. You should be charged with manslaughter. Yeah. But there needs to be justice for the fact that Karen was killed. That Karen's twins grow up without a mother. 
because of the mistake that this man made. Yeah. What failed Karen was the justice system. This is a really messed up case. And that's the reason this is still a case that lives on and that is talked about today. Because this changed Maine. But also, it's something that should be looked at. Because hunting Mm -hmm. is a sport. But it's dangerous. I mean, I just, I feel like there is too much of that Americana, this is what we do, this is what we've always done, cultural feel tied into hunting with a lot of this. Because take out take out hunting and your emotions involved with guns, with hunting, all of that. Let's change it to something you could say similar, like knife throwing. Using a weapon at a distance, because that's what the sport is. If this had been a knife-throwing accident and it missed his target and killed a woman, I feel like it would be looked at a lot differently than what it is because, oh, hunting is part of our culture, part of what we've done. But I feel like when it comes to cases, when it comes to the justice system, you need to pull back from that. And that is not what is always done. Well, damn. That was a lot. This episode, I think, again... Our topic birthing from you making a joke about shit, let's do hunting murders. I think neither of us could have ever seen that this was the episode that would be birthed from that. No, definitely not. I did not imagine. But if y'all enjoyed this episode, if y'all enjoyed the cases we did, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. Let us know what you enjoyed. We love hearing from you. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.